Right, ladies and gentlemen, it is time for a Broken Laws podcast emergency broadcast because rowing this January has been struck by scandal. We have had the spectre of performance-enhancing drugs launch, kind of rear its ugly head um, over our sport, um, and specifically the club sport. You know, we're talking about a club athlete who was asked to give a sample at the World Indoor Rowing Ch- Championships, a British club athlete, and his B sample and his A sample have apparently failed. And it just so happened that I knew someone who knew a bit about why people take performance-enhancing drugs. And so I had a chat with him. Now, Aaron, you weren't included in this chat. Um, Why was that? Is it because I'm Northern and and I don't understand big concepts? Or is it possibly because I'm profoundly disorganised and... I just messed up all the timings. Yeah, I, I think we'll go with Let's the go with the Northern thing. Let's go with the Northern thing. I'd, I'd prefer to go with the second one, seeing as you didn't actually give me the right time uh, to log in, and you'd already done it by the time that I did log in. With, with Yeah. Um, we're talking about Robert Strachan, aren't we, and, and his failed test. We're talking about the fact that the I snogged a horse that kissed a French tennis player on cocaine excuse had failed, aren't we, essentially? We, we are essentially talking about... Robert Strachan and his rather large quantities of testosterone and assorted um, asthma medications. And so I talked to a chap who is also a bit of an East Kent native um, called Phil Hurst. He works at uh, the sports science department in the Canterbury Christchurch University. Essentially, he has done a huge amount of research into why people take performance-enhancing drugs. He's researched the placebo effect. So there's this idea that a lot of the benefit we're gaining from performance-enhancing drugs is chasing a placebo effect, chasing a mental effect. And he's also researched how sports remain clean without external influence. And he has some very, very interesting points to make. He also was able to point out, I think that something that is not that known is how little we actually know in many cases about the supposed performance enhancing effects of performance enhancing drugs, because it's quite difficult to do an ethical experiment with these things. So I think we should just let Phil take it away. Uh, I believe that he did most of the talking, which is certainly a first for us. Um, and definitely, definitely for you. And then we shall come back in and have a quick chat about it. Indeed. Off you go, Phil. Right. So um, this is another little interview for the Broken Laws podcast. Um, it's a little bit of an emergency broadcast. Uh, we've just had an announcement for British rowing that uh, a gentleman whose name I won't repeat, you can look it up if you want, was caught with numerous forbidden substances in his bloodstream in at the Paris 2020 World Indoor Rowing Championships. Now, this is not the first time an indoor rower has been uh, found to be using substances. 
But what I wanted to do was get a better idea of what leads to this kind of situation arising. And to do that, I am speaking to someone who's a bit of an expert on this. And so I'd like to introduce to everyone a chap called Philip Hurst, known to everyone as Phil, uh, who has studied, what I'd be right in saying, the psychology and sociology of performance enhancing drug use. Yeah, that could be one way of putting it, the psychosocial um, mechanisms underpinning its use. But uh, expert is a strong word. Be careful with that one. (laughs) (laughs) Well, experienced and, and, well, no, experience is completely wrong. Let's let's not say that. Yeah, experience experience in doping. I love that. (laughs) Yeah. um, A a, a man with a much greater understanding than I'll ever have. So... Phil, why don't you tell us a little bit about your work on, on the subject and, and, and what you've studied? Yeah, no problem. Um, so just a bit of background, uh, I started my PhD looking into the placebo effect, which is basically the impact the mind can have on a lot of performance-hunting substances. And what we wanted to do was to educate athletes about the placebo effect to see if that would influence their decisions to use drugs in the future. And... Obviously, going into the literature, I ended up finding out, well, if we're trying to prevent drug use, then it's important to understand what may lead to it so you can target certain variables. And um, we looked at sort of doping attitudes. And with my research that sort of um, developed, I worked with the University of Birmingham, and we've come up with some sort of interventions to prevent drug use in sport by targeting things like their morality and things like moral disengagement, um, their, their values as a person. And that's sort of where we are at the minute. So um, it can be quite broad in terms of understanding the doping relationship between what, who may use this substance and why not. Uh, but that's where I am at the minute. Brilliant. Okay, so okay, ju- just to clarify, what we're looking at in this most recent in- uh, instance covers, a l- it covers, I think, the full spectrum of what we might call doping because the guy was found with clenbuterol and terbutaline in his system, which is um, which are both asthma medications. And he was also found with exogenous testosterone. Could you sort of like look through those things and say, you know, or give people an idea of what is doping and what do we mean by, by we, when we're talking about performance enhancing drugs and kind of not background to the pharmacology, but background to what is banned and why it's banned. Yeah, so doping, in, you know, the World Anti-Doping Agency is what governs what you can use in sport. And no matter whether you're an athlete competing at the Olympics or whether you're just competing at your local um, running race, your indoor uh, rowing race, they're all governed by the World Anti-Doping Agency because they're linked with the national governing bodies. So the World Anti-Doping Agency puts forward a list of prohibited substances and some drugs are on there that you're not allowed to use and obviously you're allowed to use some, some other drugs that you can. And the reason for a drug getting put on that list is that it must meet two of three criteria. So the first criteria is that it's performance enhancing. The second criteria is it's um, harmful or can be a risk to somebody's health. And then the third criteria, which is a little bit debatable, is this idea that it um, contradicts the spirit of sport, which can be interpreted in many different ways. So a board of experts will sit on a panel, 
review every type of drug that's available to athletes, and they'll say, right, is it performance enhancing? Is it harmful to health? Does it violate the spirit of sport? So if it hits two of those criteria, it gets put onto the uh, ban list. So things like that, clenbuterol, testosterone, they've perhaps been shown to be performance enhancing. They may be risk uh, harmful to health, and they may sort of uh, violate the um, spirit of sports. That's why they are banned. Poss- I don't know, maybe we should go into this later, but <laughs> clenbuterol and terbutaline, clenbuterol less so because it, 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 it's very hard to get prescription. But they are, terbutaline, I think I've definitely been prescribed that myself. These are asthma medications. And if you also look at quite a lot of anti-inflammatory medication, what are officially called corticosteroids, I hope I'm getting that right, so not yep. anabolic steroids, but corticosteroids, they seem as though they do have performance-enhancing effects, but you can use them under certain circumstances. Yep. <laughs> well, I mean, that, that, that seems as though there is a real wiggle room there. Yeah, and, uh, you know, that wiggle room has been exploited by a lot of athletes and a lot of organizations. I think if you watch any sort of BBC Panorama document recently, you might have known a certain Olympian that has been perhaps exploiting that area a little bit more. Um, Two British athletes, in in fact. Um, I might not mention names. We're not going to go into names. We won't do names. (laughs) One thing I should say that it's like, if it just if the name just pops up in the flow of the conversation, you edit these and you, so it's like we we can bleep it out, just put it on like, or something. Yeah, exactly. So yeah, um, so to use a substance like um, corticosteroid, for example, you would have to get a therapeutic use exemption form uh, to be allowed to use that, and that's where you have that a doctor would sign it off. And if we go back to the Lance Armstrong era where it was a little bit, the anti-doping provision, so to speak, wasn't as strong as it is today. You could get a sort of a TUE retrospectively. You say, oh, well, I needed that for certain things. So Lance Armstrong actually failed the drugs test in 1999, uh, but managed to get a TUE to use the corticosteroids um, for his performance, but he was there to actually perform, enhance his performance. Uh, so that's where that wiggle room may come in, is that if you have a certain doctor that's telling you, oh, I need to use this, you need to use this for your health, then you can get around it through that through that route. Okay, thank you very much. So, so we're looking at these things for doping. Now, very much, I think everybody who follows sport is aware that there is a problem at the highest levels of sport that that sort of like there are a certain number of people who are trying to do better than they really should given their ability and their training you know that's at kind of the olympics or the premier league or the tour de france or whatever you want but how in terms of people who are focused much more on amateur sport how prevalent do we think one form of doping or another, trying to get an artificial boost is at the amateur level in this country? I mean, it's a very tough question to ask because you cannot actually, we cannot measure the prevalence of doping very accurately. We don't know how many athletes are doping, etc. at any sort of level. But if you look at the, if we look at the UK in particular, a lot of the athletes that fail a drugs test are not elite athletes. 
they're quite amateur athletes. Okay. So you could argue it's pro- it may be more likely, it may be more prevalent at the amateur level than it is in the elite level. And this may come because of education. They don't really are aware of the antidote rules. Uh, as I said, every type of sport, no matter what level you're competing at, is under the antidote rules. Um, so athletes may not be aware that they are allowed to use certain substances or not. They might just think of steroids that they're not allowed to use, but they think, I'm not using steroids, I'm not doping. When we consider something like clenbuterol or some sort of asthma medication, for a regular person, they're not going to think that's doping. Um, so you might, there might be an education issue. There might also be some sort of doping control issue, whereas a lot of amateur athletes are not going to get drugs tested in their career. So they'll think, you know what it is, I can take whatever I like and no one's going to catch me. And then by the time the doping testers turn up, they're going to get popped. So um, in that sense, th- th- there is a way to think about it that lower ability levels, it might actually be more prevalent than it actually is. Um, there's also this idea that athletes may think that if everyone is doing it, if they think, well, all the people in, do- all the people in elite sport are doping, then why shouldn't I? And this is where this sort of the morality comes into it. And people sort of disengage their morality and think, well, if everyone else is doing it, I may as well do it as well. So there could be something at play there where athletes are thinking, you know what it is, I may as well do it as well if I can. Yeah. Okay, so it's not unreasonable to say that, you know, I I don't actually know if it's a, you can say, oh, it's a big problem, but it's almost, you know, we we know it's prevalent because people get caught. We know that actually the majority of people who are caught in the UK are not professional elite athletes. They're kind of people who are, I believe rugby's had quite a lot of a problem. Uh, yeah, you're right. Yeah. Yeah. Go on. I don't know. I don't know if I'm, I'm at speaking, you know, out of date on that one or whatever it is. So rugby and particularly Welsh rugby had a, had a real yeah. issue with it for a while. Yeah. I think in 2016, there was a huge case of steroids being used in Cardiff. Um, so this, this is where, it gets a little bit blurred because people use performance enhancing drugs not to enhance their performance, but to enhance their image. So they become right. image and performance enhancing drugs. So if you look at this, the, the, the use of steroids in the UK, it's not about trying to run faster or trying to row further or uh, get out increase your power output. It's to make yourself look sexier or have bigger <laughs> muscles, however you want to put it. And this is sort of a... It's now turned from a sport issue into a societal issue where people are abusing steroids to enhance their image without much knowledge. So if you're a person who's looking to have bigger biceps, but also you do rowing, then you know, you might actually, you're not doing it to improve your rowing performance, but you might actually compete. So, so there's a little bit of a, 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 yeah, a way they're sort of competing against each other. This was, this was something that, somebody said on Twitter um, that they thought quite a few of the cases of people getting caught in indoor rowers, it wasn't a rower who turned to steroids. It was a steroid user who who thought having a crack at indoor rowing might be fun. Um, Yeah. I would imagine he goes to the gym and goes, wow, look at the power output that I have. Look at the time I can do for 2K without any training. Just the fact that he's huge, you know, it's going to have an impact on an ergo too, isn't it? Um, so in that sense, you might get someone who just transfers from a gym user into indoor rowing and suddenly becomes really good. Okay. So, so that kind of leads us on to this idea, sort of like 
the the motivations that people have to to start and to keep using some form of performance enhancement so so we kind of looked at this sort of like weird route oh, i can't okay weird is the wrong word I, I don't want to sort of disparage anybody's like own concern about their their physique but this kind of aesthetic route and then you've also got the sort of what well, everybody else is doing it so why shouldn't i i mean are, are those are kind of like the are there other drivers yeah so i mean if you consider I, you could separate it into sort of the image performance enhancing drugs and then well so the image enhancing drugs and the performance enhancing drugs you know the image enhancing drugs are there for aesthetics you know you're going to take corticosteroids to strip fat you're going to take steroids to increase the muscle size human growth hormone to make itself look bigger um so that's aesthetically you're doing it for sort of those external reasons um performance enhancing drug use is perhaps a, a little bit more complicated because there's so much going on and a reason for an athlete taking that um and it's sort of where our where enemies are ourselves the sporting industry um because what we do is we we praise bigger fat or bigger faster stronger you know the olympic model is to get better to become faster mm -hmm. and we encourage sports supplements we encourage better equipment we encourage the better shoes that you wear the training that you do yeah. but at the same time we're telling someone there's a line and you're not allowed to cross it so for someone who goes to themselves away there i'm doing all this work i'm spending all this money and i'm becoming i'm becoming better but actually i've hit a plateau what is the difference then from using a protein shake to using something like a little bit of a pill for testosterone and they might start to see the, the difference they've gone well do you know what it is i'm i'm doing everything to enhance my performance and but i'm not maximizing it by not using these substances so the the mindset of that person then is a little yeah they don't know really the difference between what's allowed to use and what's not allowed to use okay that that's actually a really interesting point that maybe we could just drill down into that it, it's almost because this is the question that was like driving me was that it seems as though if you if you're aware of all the sports science and all the best ways of training and all the best equipment and nutrition and psychology and all of these things it will take you so far in quite a long period of time you, you're going to have to spend a long time getting there if you're aware of the pharmacology you can get that far and quite possibly even further in a much shorter space of time is there this kind of question that if you have said i am going to be the best and i'm going to do whatever it takes it's almost illogical in some people's minds not to dope even if it's still immoral sorry i, I, I want to get that one in there because otherwise it just like <laughs> get out there well i want yeah i want to go to the first point it's that it's a maybe it, it, it's it, it, i suppose it's hypothetical to say it's going to increase performance because that's the general perception of doping that it's going to actually lift you up to another level but if you look i mean i remember reading dwayne james's book and he said after everything he went i don't know why i did it because i was going to be that quick anyway uh, yeah so he was telling himself why did i do all that because i was just going to be i was going to run that quick so why, why do i why did I use that in the first place? And with the Icarus documentary on Netflix, 
what the what because of a the great story that came with it with Russia, what they didn't actually focus on was this guy went from like a top ten in this cycling race to then f- doping for a full year and then doing worse the next year, and they didn't put, put anything on that. He did. He, whether I know he had mechanical issues and all of that, but he actually did worse doping than he did when he didn't dope. So yeah. the, the best message of that movie should be, why dope? Because it's not actually going to guarantee performance enhancement. Yeah. So there's a, yeah. But I mean, if you go to, <laughs> but if you go to the pharmacology of it, you know, is it illogical to do so? Forget the morality side of it. Yes and no. I mean, there's, there's a huge health risk that these substances do have, and that can't be dismissed. If you're going to just boost yourself with anabolic steroids, there's the physiological risks that it has, you know, the increase in cardiovascular disease, um, and then there's also a huge psychological risk that can have in terms of dependency, and what you do actually after the, the block of steroids that you've done, do you have to carry on taking them to stay at a certain level yeah. to, you know, have that homeostasis level? So you know you're asking your, yourself as a as a person not just as an athlete do you want to live in a sort of a yeah you consider the heavily the case that has for the rest of your life potentially but i suppose using a little doses might might be safer but then are you going to get the big, the best boost in performance yeah I mean, and it should be noted that the case that we've heard of he was racing the 500 meter event which is the sprint event at the world indoor rowing championships and i think he only came seventh he certainly didn't come any higher than fifth i don't think he was a long way off a medal position but it certainly you know it, it didn't sort of, he did not yeah, I mean, that, the field yeah that, that that tells me then as well that the why drug why drugs test someone who comes seventh you know why, why do that in the first place i think there's maybe some intelligence behind that probably. in terms of uh, you can't you can't you don't when i've probably been told you know this guy's been taking steroids so he's been taking some um performance enhancing substances that are banned can you please test him so maybe that's an intelligence vote which sort of goes back to our previous question of whether it's prevalent in amateur sports and things like this actually skew the field a little by saying, oh, well, if someone's seventh using it, then obviously everyone else is doing it in front of him. But maybe there's some reports that are coming in to say you need to test this person. Okay. It's, yeah, I mean, it's, quite, it's quite expensive to do. It's about a £1,000 per test. And the you can't do it, and I'm just going to waste money testing one person who comes seventh at an indoor rowing competition for no reason. Okay. I mean, in this case, I mean, I've, I've, seen, I've seen pictures of the guy and... I know what athletes who are going to win the men's 30-plus indoor rowing race should look like. And, you know, he was was basically started off about six inches too short. So, I mean, it's like to say everybody ahead of him must have also been doping. I I don't think that's necessarily applicable. It's, It's not like, like, well, okay... Lance Armstrong was beating Jan Ulrich and Jan Ulrich got pop. I mean, it's sort of like Jan Ulrich was one of the most naturally cyclists <laughs> of the last century. It's, it's not quite that situation. I mean, it, I, I, think, I think, you know, he, he went sub 120 for 500. And that's, I, I, I'd say that's your, it's not your entry level standard, but it, it's your kind of 
It's your bronze standard. You're, you're in with a shot. I mean, just to throw a spanner in the works of that, you know, is it unfair that because you don't have the height, you can't compete with some athletes like that? Because they are naturally gifted to have such an increase in performance because they're just taller. <laughs> I'd say that sort of like the height is kind of a, is just a, a very quick shorthand for a lot of other things. I mean, it typically the top sprinters, they are six foot five plus. And they're, they're genuinely massive guys. They're, they're not even the sort of the sort of ectomorph types like me with, with like really, really long arms and legs. They look like normal people. They're very much in proportion um, for like quite a big, strong guy. It's just when you get close to them, you have to crane your neck up to the ceiling because they're just, everything scaled up. And yeah, I mean, I, I see what, what you're saying. No, he wasn't really, you know, I don't think he would have been able to compete with those guys. But at the same time, he wasn't competing with those guys because he was in the age group category, not in the open category. You know, so he, he, was, he was slightly, I don't, I don't know how to say it, he, he, he was kind of really, the morality there of doping to win an age group competition seem, seems a little bit, sort of, come on, chap, this is... <laughs> you, you, you're really pushing it now you've got to be asking yourself some questions but you could flip it and say well just because it's a lower you know category or a lower lower event it doesn't really matter type thing so there's less emphasis on it so yeah, your morality on that is like well yeah just a, yeah completely different perspective maybe Let, let's say this guy had won it I mean literally he'll get a medal he'll get a little bit of satisfaction he'll pop it up in the shelf and What's actually happened is that he has now, he's been banned from all rowing regardless for four years. Yeah. And, you know, that, that's longer than Justin Gately got. Yeah. Well, he, yeah doesn't have the, he probably doesn't have the money to help them out. <laughs> failing two drug tests. And I, I, do, I do think sort of like, you know, how, how, how moral and reasonable is it that we are going with the same sanctions after people where there's no money involved, where there's no massive investment other than of, it's basically their hobby yeah. involved. I mean, it's, it's, it's even bigger than that about rowing, you know. Um, as I mentioned with water governing all of sport, then that actually goes into anything to do with UK sport and whoever UK sport funds. He's not allowed to take part in any other competition or any other sporting event. If a gym or some sort of sports centre is funded by UK Sport or lottery funding, he won't be able to um, be using those facilities. I mean, what, so, seriously, he, he would be banned from... Everything. Oh, my God. Okay, yeah. I mean, that... that... So it, it, it's, I mean, you, you know, you, you, I'd imagine if he goes into somewhere like um, like a London sports centre, they're not going to probably look at him and go, oh, no, that's the, the indoor row. Yes, yes. <laughs> it's, it's unlikely to happen. But at the same time, if someone does recognise him and say, you know, you, you sh you're not allowed to be here, he could potentially be removed from the premises because he has been banned from sport. Yeah, that... <laughs> So, yeah, I, I, I kind of get your point. It's quite significant on someone's livelihood in terms of what that actually does for him, you know, because at the same time, he's probably just been doing it for recreational purposes. He's not there to, you know, w win an Olympic medal to change his life or to get a huge amount of money to change his life. You know, he's probably just doing it at a 
for enjoyment. So, you know, from the morality side of water, that's perhaps them saying, you know, you've actually ruined someone's life for four years. Yeah, I mean, the, the guy I think is actually a personal trainer. He, he, he's got like a coaching business on the side. Now, he coaches triathlon, yeah. so I'm not sure anybody's going to be too bothered about the fact that he's got a positive test. No, someone didn't say that. Um, <laughs> we've kind of looked at like the individual motivations there. But we, you know, I think we also would say, uh, again, correct me if I'm wrong here, but there are some sports which we think of as dirty, and there are some sports we think of as clean. It may be that I'm, I'm wrong in saying, you know, we think of rowing as a clean sport. And I've looked at the figures and internationally, you can't make that assertion. And we think of, let's say, my apologies to international road cycling, but international road cycling is a very dirty sport. What things lead to that divergence? What leads to a sport becoming dirty? What leads to a sport becoming or staying clean if it ever was? Yeah, so the, the history of the sport, I mean, you go back to cycling. Cycling is probably one of the first ever organizations which has a competition in place. You know, you go back to early 1900s, late 1800s, and ever since the start of those competitions, cyclists were taking the drugs at the time that you could have. Uh, and then as the years progress, more athletes are going to get drugs tested in those sports, so they're more likely to get um, sh shown to have failed the drugs test. And then I suppose the cycling in 1999, you know, the late 90s, the Festina scandal where it's been found that pretty much the whole peloton has been doping. And then Lance Armstrong doesn't help, etc. Um, and then I suppose the media is going to highlight that even more. You know, if it's a popular sport and then a person gets done for drugs, uh, done for doping, then it's going to be everywhere. So the media has quite a responsibility with that. Um, I'm an athlete in uh, 500 meters, or was an athlete in 500 meters, and athletics recently has been has been tarnished in terms of the amount of athletes being done for doping at the London 2012 Olympics. So you could even say athletics, cycling, weightlifting, rugby, all seem to be the popular sports that have all been done to, sort of having their name branded as dirty. Um, but drug, uh, doping happens in every single sport, and I don't think the prevalence is really different amongst most sports nowadays, probably other than weightlifting, I'd say. Um, there's so many different scandals or so many cases in football that go unnoticed. So I don't know why they don't go unnoticed. If you consider tennis as well, there's quite a few athletes that have been in that type of sport. So I, I think the media... Kissing a French woman excuse. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Whoever knows what excuses they use to get out of competition. Uh, <laughs> but uh, yeah, so I'd say it was mainly the media that might control it. You can imagine the more the sports with a lot more money tend to be protected a lot more in okay. terms of if you, if you consider FIFA, if you consider um, the, the, the ITA, the International Tennis Association, there's millions of pounds, dollars going into those businesses. And the last thing they need is an athlete who's going to be failing a drugs test to tarnish their image. So you could argue something like athletics and cycling and weightlifting. There's not a lot of money if you can compare it to those types of sports. So maybe there is some sort of um, political agendas, to, yeah. to, to put it that, put it one way, that may be controlling the narrative. 
Okay. Um, in that way. I mean, I've, I've looked for this, and, you know, I, I used to think, oh, you know, you can, you can spot the sport that's dirty. It's where, it's where the sport becomes part of the entertainment industry more than it becomes a sport. So if you look at, like, baseball or NFL or something like that, you look and you just go, well, they're, 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 a, weekly, they're a weekly touring gig basically it, it's not they're not really sport per se they're they're kind of much more like that but then also weightlifting weightlifting isn't like that it's just an yeah. olympic sport and as, as far as i know there are very very few places in the world that you can make enough money to buy a house by being an olympic weightlifter as as yeah. as immensely hard and risky and grueling as that sport is i do th i do think that you know i is it just that the performance enhancement is just so great for weightlift no i i think it may be more noticeable i think there's the the classic gary lineker quote and that says you know performance and drugs do not help a footballer you know take take someone on in a drug but it's going to massively improve your performance in the last 10 minutes of a 90 minute game where if you can sprint that half a second faster you are going to get to the ball quicker you are going to beat the offside trap and you're going to score the goal so it has a huge implication just in a different way and we probably can't really measure it as easily so actually going back to your previous question of which sports are the most dirtiest and why it's probably the ones that are most objective because you consider weightlifting cycling and athletics it's against the stopwatch, it's against how much you can lift, how fast you can ride. It's so much easier to determine who's doping and not. Whereas down football, rugby, uh, tennis, other factors may come into play that are more technical and are perhaps, you know, overshadowed by physical attributes. Let's talk about rowing. Our, I've, I've been a member of more rowing clubs than most in my life because of traveling around the country and sort of living in different places. There are two things about rowing. So the first one is that in general, it's not, people don't really talk about drugs. If, if, if you're a cyclist, I think there's a lot of conversation of who's been popped, what have they been popped for, does it work, where can I get some? In rowing, that, it's never, it's never really at the forefront of people's consciousness. If there was anything going on at any of the clubs I was at, it was very, very quiet. It was never a systematic thing. The other thing is, because we have rowing machines, which play such a big part in our, in our training, and we can see, you know, you know, if you see a bunch of three guys training in front of you on the rowing machines, you can see what their power output is. Yeah. Half the time, you can see what their heart rate is. And if they suddenly, and, and everybody knows that, you know, if you're a beginner, you can get a bit faster, and, and then you hit that plateau, and you're just churning, you're looking for extra seconds over 2,000 meters for years after that. <laughs> but if somebody suddenly goes, aha, look, I'm six seconds faster on my 2K, when they were at 6.20, and they've done that in four weeks, you're just going to go, that's bollocks, mate. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm sorry, no, that's, 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 just, that's just crap. What are you taking? Um, because you can see very objectively these huge performance jumps. So I think it's quite hard to hide 
in in rowing i'm saying that with hope rather than <laughs> you know I'm, I'm sitting there just going <laughs> i really hope that's what it is but let's just say that club rowing in the uk is quite a clean sport what can we do to keep it clean what 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 should we yeah. do to our club mates what should club chairman be saying to their club captains yeah i think i mean i'm not a rower but i do know quite i know a couple but what i've seen from rowers is the values in rowers is quite strong you know i think there's a hard working ethic there it seems quite an honest sport just in general of the people involved i don't know if you would agree with that there there is a huge premium placed on churning out the miles suffering on the intervals you know we we value people who are willing to the sick bucket is not seen as a sign of weakness yeah and i, I love that and i think perhaps in other sports it's just it's slightly more on the equipment and you know the technology that you're using and things like that that perhaps are more valued than you know what it is guys and you get in this in the gym and you just need to work your ass off for two hours flat and I want you to be sick and that sort of work ethic and the values underpinning that is so important so when you consider the chairman in each club it's all about you know who who has worked the hardest who has perhaps shown the most honesty or the most integrity in their sport as they go forward and we're we're rewarding that rather than who has actually you know been the best rower for whatever whatever reason so I think that that would be the most important thing to to keep hold of, and you know if you look at the Olympic uh, values, and you know if we go to the sort of this moral sense of the Olympics, it is all about you know this amateur sense of sport and be, being the best you can be, and I think that's so important to hold on to. Right, I mean, I find it really interesting you saying that because actually, I do hear a lot of people in rowing now almost being you know quite cynical about rowing's a clean sport because we have we have values and a sense of fair play so yeah that's going to protect us <laughs> but it almost seems as though what you're saying is yes that is what protects you that if you if you value that and you emphasize that and you you know you put those things up on your wall saying sort of like hi I, so at Maidstone, a, a co- uh, no, not a coach of mine, but a coach of the juniors wrote on the wall in chalk, selection equals attendance, attitude, and attainment. That kind of summed it up. And I find it very interesting that you, with, with like some experience and, and like research and knowledge into this, is saying, no, actually do value that, that level of honesty and integrity and, and these cultural aspects to it. Yeah, I, I love that. I think that's great. And, and it, you know, you're, it is quite funny when you do think of all, you know, values. And I think the issue with that is it's quite preachy. You know, we often say, you know, you should be this or this is the right way to go. And it's how it's framed rather than what it means. So we have to be, we have to be make sure that when you, I can imagine, to that coach, you know, selection equals this, you know, attainment, uh, you know, all of that, it has to be believed by everyone in that group as well. And if it isn't, 
then it's just going to fall fall apart. So the most strongest person in the room has to have that. And I think that's, I look at, you know, Red Gray, Pinson, and I think, you know, there's those guys just epitomized hard work. They really epitomize those Olympic values. I mean, I'm very much on the outside, so I don't know much about them, but that to me is really, is quite cool in a way if they can be the best in the world and show those values at the same time, rather than, you know, seeing an athlete with these fancy cars and showing how much he doesn't, you know, he does a bit of work, but he's able to do this and gets the rewards from it. You know, you want to be able to show that when you put in that hard work, you, you turn up on time, you, you've got those values, that's going to lead to more success in the future and actually breed success in the group at the same time. Okay. I'm, well, I mean, right, in that case, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to sort of call people up on saying, you know, no, <laughs> don't be cynical about it. Actually, this is really important. This is what will defenders. I mean, I... I, I I could be cynical about it myself, but I'm, 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 I do think that possibly, you know, I, I have read people talking about culture is the what is the inoculation against cheating. It, it's what you believe in as an individual, as a crew, as a club, as a national governing body, as a sport in general. Top down, absolutely. And top down and bottom up, they work yeah. together. And it has to be the, the same value throughout. Um, there was a, in tennis in America, there was a, a college where the coach specifically rewarded players for actually calling them fouls. So if they actually had a foul in a match, they called it themselves and he, he wanted to encourage honesty. And those athletes that were being honest were the ones who went to the competition and he actually removed all those other athletes who didn't believe in the values. And after so many years he had a good group of athletes around in the in the in the team and he ended up winning all the national titles for the next 10 years he was the most successful ncaa coach in the entire history of uh, america and he epitomized those values and i think that's where it's so important that everyone in the group has the same values and it, it, i know when i say it to myself now it does sound really cheesy but it's cheesy for a reason you could say Okay, so so it, it's a question that sort of it's not just about integrity with regards to doping. It's about integrity, full stop, across the board. Yeah, I mean, the, the yeah, it has to be. I mean, if 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 um, if the coach suddenly starts going against the values of what everyone else believes, and then it's it's, it's going to be a mismatch, and then people won't believe in them or, or won't follow that anymore. Okay. Cool. Um, there was one other thing that I wanted to talk about, which was uh, this asthma medication thing. So, um, obviously, there's been. So let let's let's talk about the, the the compounds rather than the athletes. But triamcinolone, which is a very powerful corticosteroid, apparently prescribed when people have asthma uh, and very serious asthma. Um, salbutamol, which is just literally as common as muck. Pharmacies these days, if you get any form of lung-related medication, they will just put two Ventolin inhalers in your prescription with you. They'll just go, there you go, have, have a couple of relievers. And that, that's salbutamol, and, and that's kind of there. Clenbuterol is famous, at, you know, Alberto Contador, who I, I think is just vastly too rich to be bothered about whether or not 
we're talking about him. Alberto Contador was banned for that. This guy recently, it was detected in his system, but it's actually, I think it's normally only a veterinary medication. It's given to horses with asthma. As an asthmatic athlete, I've never picked up any kind of like, oh, I've had a couple of puffs of Ventolin before I go on the machine. I'm going faster. That's literally never happened to me. So what, what is the kind of evidence that people are abusing this, that it actually works as a performance-enhancing drug? And so what are the degrees in there? I mean, if we go for evidence, it, and we're going to take the nick out of sports science now, you know, okay. the, evidence, the evidence in sports science is shocking, poor. Okay. For a good reason, actually, you know, um, if we wanted to understand the effects of these drugs on athletes, we would have to give them so much of the drug that actual athletes will be using. So ethically, we cannot give out the same amount of doses in a randomized controlled trial because it's unethical to do so. It's okay. really simple. Um, so what I would say is actually fueling the, the use, what's fueling maybe some performance enhancements, and I say that with quotation marks, um, it's probably just the belief that they're taking it. Uh, and I'm an asthmatic myself, and I used to take my salbutamol inhaler every time that I ran. Yeah. And I remember there was definitely a couple of occasions when I didn't take it, thought I had, and I ran exactly the same. And I didn't need my inhaler. But when I knew I hadn't had it, my lungs just suddenly tightened up and I, you know, I have to have an asthma medication. So in my mind, I'm thinking I need that. So this kind of goes, I mean, I'm, I'm biased towards the placebo effect because I did my PhD in it, but our mindset is so important when it comes to what we take, the training we do and everything else, that it's going to influence how well something works. Right. Okay. So I believe a colleague of yours, a former colleague of yours, Chris Beattie, once said that the placebo effect is the strongest, most repeatable, most reliable effect we see, or performance-enhancing effect we see in all of sports medication, or all, all of sports science. And could a lot of these people actually be like sitting there and it's like six puffs before park run, and it's <laughs> that what they're doing, this is just a mechanism behind to, to access a placebo effect. Yeah, it's just opening the door. For some strange reason, you know, our bodies don't hit them 100% all the time. You know, there's just, whether that's psychological, physiological, biological, whatever it may be, you know, where we, we never hit 100% all of the time. And what a placebo effect does is it allows you to open that door to go and push, push that level just that little bit more. Um, and that's, I mean, I'm, again, I think about my own performances as an athlete. I was probably so susceptible to the placebo effect um, that, yeah, it is probably so enhances our performance significantly. And it's important that athletes realize that whatever they do, no matter whether that's the drugs that they're taking or, you know, the, perhaps the way the air goes set up, how tight the, um, the straps are, however it may be, you know, as long as someone believes that that's improving their performance is going to help them, then it's going to help them some form or another. So almost, again, you're saying that sort of like rather than sort of, sort of 
move away almost from the ritual of two puffs, six puffs, whatever it is, on the Ventolin, find, find rituals that you have to go through before you train, you compete, whatever. And, you know, okay, classic sports science. What, what is your pre-performance routine? Get that nailed in. And then almost that could have the same sort of effect. Yeah, I mean, I would have my same routine before every single race. And that would build my confidence in my performance to know like, do you know what it is? I've listened to the right music. I've had a little bit of carbohydrates. I've, you know, drank my Lucas I've done the correct warm up. I've done the drills. I'm ready to go. I've done everything that I can possibly do because that then gives my confidence. If I miss one of those things, then all of a sudden my mindset goes, do you know what it is? I missed. I didn't listen to the right song and I'm going to, I'm not going to perform very well. Straight away, that negative mindset is going to then go, Oh, you're not performing very well. The tiredness becomes more tired. The legs become heavier. The breathing becomes stronger. And it just cascades itself. So yeah. it's just about, yeah, like you say, just build on, have something that you think works and believe that it works and it should work. There we go. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm going to take that as, as, as like the message. It's just like, don't do drugs, kids. Get a pre-performance routine. <laughs> I mean, I was, for, I was fortunate enough to be mentored by Kelly Holmes. And I remember Kelly Holmes telling me that the difference on the start line was the one who thought, the, the one who believed they were going to win. Okay. I mean, you look, at, you look at the difference in times between athletes on the start line, and it's very minuscule sometimes. And the person who thinks that they're going to win the most is probably the person who's going to win. And that's what Kelly said. She just knew she was going to win. And she did well. You see the right, didn't she? <laughs> there we go. That's, that's actually been absolutely brilliant, Phil. Um, that, that has actually been really enlightening and really helpful. And I had fun. It was good. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so um, we'll let you know as soon as it goes out. But I really appreciate your time. Um, no, thanks. Sorry to drag you away from your holiday. It looks like <laughs> it's not a holiday. I'm still working. I've got. I'm doing marking right now. Oh, you're joking! <laughs> so, yeah, so, you're, so you're in a place with like blue sky and palm trees. I know. Yeah. I know. If you know, I'm. I'm really fortunate enough that um, I've got family who are able to just say, Do "You know what it is? We'll pay for this, and you can stay for as long as you can," because they're so they're so worried about the coronavirus. They're okay. so on it they just don't want us to go back so i'm really fortunate to be here okay well <laughs> enjoy it T take every advice you. you can and um yeah don't let the marking grind you down there we go so there's there's an actual conversation with an ex actual expert in his field which for us you know you could yeah i mean for, given that we're basically a couple of chances trying to encompass all of sport and the sports effect in society when you're actually talking to someone who knows his stuff you, you can sort of see the difference so this one is i think this one is one for people to download and keep on their phones because um it's a knowledgeable chap doing knowledgeable stuff you know there's a lot you know he, he didn't really stop raising interesting points but for me the really interesting thing was this idea that the narratives within a sport, 
and the myths within a sport and the culture within a sport are genuinely important for keeping that sport as an in, uh, as a place with integrity. And I would say the I have been guilty of uh, turning around and saying, ah, oh, well, you know, there's no, you know, we can't just rely on this supposed Corinthian ideal that exists within rowing that, you know, we don't dope. Actually, based on what Phil was saying, that is something, that is a narrative that we have to talk about and live and it will have an effect. Yeah, I would agree with that. I think it's very refreshing because we're all sports people here. We all we all compete, we all train, we all race, we all row, we all do something. We're all part of the narrative. It's very refreshing to hear somebody talking knowledgeably about the effects of doping in sport, the perceived effects versus the actual effects, why people potentially do it, and what we can do about it from a position of authority rather than the the Daily Mail headline or the or the Guardian headline or the or the or the Twitter feed storm and the trolls coming out from under the bridge when we trip trap across it with the magical words Jurgen and GDR. Um, it was it was really refreshing, and I think if I'm not much mistaken, Loon, we touched upon why why don't we dope as as rowers? Why do we not have a doping culture in rowing in the way that historically, for example, cycling and sprinting have? And in the Jurgen Gate episode, we talked about, well, we just don't. It, we're kind of, when, once you get into the sport, how do we do things? We do things by hard work. How do we achieve things? We achieve them by hard work. We talked about the culture of the dressing room where if you suddenly went from 6.30 to 6.05 in the course of a season, everyone would be looking at you going, I'm sorry, what have you been sprinkling on your breakfast Weetabix? Um, the fact that you form such close bonds within a crew that, that means it's it's there's a sense of transparency there. The fact that every session is logged, so, so performance gains are, they're all on the table, they're all on the spreadsheet, how important this was. And we thought, well, you know, could it be that? And basically Phil's saying, well, actually, yes, it is. It is talking. It's talking the narrative and then living the narrative that acts act in a protective way. I, I think my last point is an appeal to rowers to not give in to cynicism, to actually see the what I will admit are myths that we tell about our sport, which are not 100 percent true. There is a value to, to idolizing those myths because that process will make them 99.99% true. Yeah, the more we talk about it, the more we reinforce that this is how we do things in rowing. We don't take the shortcuts. We do, we do not just hard work, but good work. And we take pride in the, in the, in the level that that takes us to. We don't want rowing to be like cycling. We don't have that history. We don't have we don't have decades of constant scandal. So let's let's keep let's keep telling a positive narrative about our wonderful sport, and let's not get dragged down into cynicism, which seems to be the twenty first century way. Let's not. Let's be positive and optimistic about what we've got, and let's protect it. That's it. Bow side holding, stroke side out. <laughs> <laughs>